The views and opinions expressed on the 10-8 podcast are those of the authors and guests individually. They do not necessarily reflect an official policy or position. The 10-8 podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not affiliated with any entity, agency, or department. Singing about my fickle feelings Cause there ain't no antidote Laying here in silence Cause I cannot find a damn remote Even if I found it I would probably just flip, flip and flip In the midst of August Getting started on my Christmas list I've been thinking about you And I wanna go do something nice I can't take rejection And that's why I paid a crazy price If you ain't ecstatic I feel like I blew it big time I'm a little manic I just wanna see a big smile Nothing means more to me Than when I hear that you proud of me Acting like a kid because I never quite learned how to be Peanut butter waffles when it's dinner time And I'm alone Hiding in my castle But the walls are made of styrofoam I know There's no in-between It's either high, low You know how to balance But I don't I wish I could finally just find home I know There's no in-between It's either high, low You know how to balance But I don't I wish I could finally just find home I'm drinking coffee at 3am Playing Battlegrounds and Overwatch Volume up to 50 cause it get too trippy if it's not Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening Whenever and wherever you're listening Welcome to episode 23 of the 10A Podcast My guest today is Michael Scott I told Dwight that there is honor in losing Which as we all know is completely ridiculous But there is however honor in making a loser feel better which is what I just did for Dwight. Would I rather be feared or loved? Um, easy, both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. And I think I proved that today at the dojo. No, not, not that Michael Scott. This Michael Scott is the director for the Center of Problem-Oriented Policing and a clinical professor at Arizona State University's School of Criminology and Criminal Justice. He has a hell of a resume, uh, including being a police officer in Wisconsin and the police chief of an agency in Florida. But I'm going to let him introduce himself in just a bit because his resume is very expansive and definitely precedes him. And I'm lucky to have him on the show today. But what I'm going to do first, I'm going to start the show a little lighter than normal. I know I usually kind of start talking about more serious police issues. But today, you know what, I figured I'd share a fun story with you guys Um Last week's episode was kind of heavy, so we're going to start a little lighter. Uh, this is from a few years ago, the story it is. Um, so it seems like every time I bring up a deputy or a deputy comes on the show or I have a rural cop, uh, I really want to hear something about a crazy animal story they've done because, let's be honest, in the city setting, I don't really encounter many animals besides like pit bulls and the occasional chicken. I still don't understand that one myself, but we, we got hood chickens. I don't get it. So anyway, um, a few years ago, I was getting off work on Christmas Eve morning, okay, just to set this set the scene here. Um, I did not, so my agency did not have a take home car policy at that time, but I was on on an on call status, so I was allowed to take my police car home, and I didn't um, live in the county that I worked in. So um, that being said, I wasn't used to having two sets of keys on me one for my police car, one for my personal car, and I forgot my car keys at home. So when I went 10-7 or off-duty for the night, I had to drive home in the police car 
pick up my car keys, drive all the way back to the city I work in, pick up my personal car and bring it home. Okay. So I did just that. I drove all the way home, picked up my personal car keys, and then started driving back. Well, on my way up to my house, I saw a bunch of deer because this is Florida and it's winter, but the deer are still present. Well, on the ride home, or I'm sorry, ride from my home back to the police station, those deer decided to cross the street. And one of them, as I was coming around a curve, darted out right in front of me, hit the police car, um, and I crashed my car. Anyone that knows me personally or I've had this conversation with knows that I've had uh, bad luck, <laughs> so to speak, as far as car crashes. We won't get into that. Um, so whatever. Uh, this is one of the first ones I was in on duty. Technically on duty. I was on duty but off duty at the same time. Anyway. Um, so I pull over. I call it in. And then I call my lieutenant. Or my lieutenant called me because our shifts had changed. Uh, my supervisors were off duty, but the on-duty supervisor called my lieutenant, who actually lived right down the road from where I, where I was in the accident. So when I called it into dispatch, they called the appropriate county. They were going to send out uh, a deputy, but that that was it. I didn't see a deputy pull up. Nothing. So I'm on the phone. My my lieutenant's like, "Hey, you know, how bad's the damage? Are you good? I'm fine. Whatever." I get out. I go look at the damage. It really wasn't all that bad. Little little crinkle cut on the uh, on the passenger side, but nothing major. And as I'm talking to him, and and he's you know giving me some shit, but in a in a loving way that he always did, I hear a gunshot go off, and I'm like, I'm like, um, and the lieutenant was like, "What was that?" I was like. LT, I, th- I think I'm taking fire. Now, let me let me explain where where this crash happened. It was on a, co- a county road, and it was dark, no street lights, nothing. And, again, I hear a gunshot go off. I'm like, LT, I got to call you back. I'm taking fire. So I, like, I hang up on him. I, fr- I, I draw my shit, and I'm ready. Well, then I see the deputy car come right around the corner. And he's like, hey, buddy, don't worry. I, I took care of that deer for you. I'm like. Jesus, man, you couldn't have told me that you were here? He's like, oh, I'm sorry, did I spook you? As I'm holstering my gun, I was like, nah, man, it's it's cool. And then he's like, well, we're a deputy, so uh, I can't take the crash for you. I could sit with you if you want, um, but FHP is on their way. Uh, timeout's about two hours. Like, Jesus shit, man. So, yeah, I had to sit. In my, now, mind you, I just worked a 12-hour shift. Um, had to wait... So it's four o'clock in the morning, had to wait two hours for FHP just to get there and handle the crash report because God forbid a deputy opens the crash report system. FHP shows up. They're not there 30 minutes and they go, all right, here's your, uh, here's your slip. You got to take that to your, your, uh, command. And I drove all the way back to the city I work in. I had to, you know, I took a, had to take the P test, everything. By the time I got home again, this is Christmas Eve. Okay. Um, by the time I got home, it was 10 a.m. It was absolutely miserable. Um, of course, you know, I, I pooped my pants when uh, when I thought I was getting shot at. <laughs> thought, you know, some of the deliverance boys were coming after me, and uh, and what and and my car was crashed. It was great, great, good times. At least it was Christmas Eve, right? So anyway, that's the fun story. Um, I don't like I said. I I think I've told the the few animal stories I have. I always love seeing dogs on duty. I don't care what the call is. If there's a dog on duty, I'm happy to be there. Um, 
Saw the pig once. I got to find, I got a picture of the pig one somewhere. I'll, I'll share that. But, um, yeah, so that's my, uh, my story. Moral of the story, um, deputies, if you're going to, or anybody, if you're going to assist with, uh, euthanizing a injured deer after a, uh, on duty crash, um, let the officer know you're there before you're just popping rounds. And, uh, secondly, deputies take crashes. It, it won't hurt you. I promise. So anyway, uh, I probably should have said that story back in December with the whole Christmas theme, but uh, it came up recently in in another conversation, and I thought it was a good one, so I shared it. Speaking of good ones, the conversation with with Michael Scott is very good, very informative. I hope you guys enjoy it. I hope you guys take something away from it. So sit down, listen up, and here we go. Darling, darling. My, how the time flew We were so poor and lost back then But we made it through I got the groceries and you paid the electric Just enough to maintain two Things were never easy but we were strong together Cause one and one made two so I'll drive all night till the wheels fall off Just to get to you I'll keep you warm when it's cold outside Won't have to ask me to Pull you close when it's hectic and you're feeling disconnected I'll be there for you Give every beat till my heart runs out remember on my very first day as a rookie police officer uh, out of field training first uh, shift on my own I get my squad car all ready go through all my checks roll out of the police garage head out toward my assigned beat which luckily I remembered where it was in the city and how to get there And I remember my very first thought coming into my beat, which uh, was a fairly quiet beat. My very first thought was, now what do I do? (laughs) And I sat there uh, driving around in my squad car, um, half hoping and half hoping not that the radio would call my car number and give me an assignment. And without that assignment, I was not really entirely sure what I should do beyond driving around my beat and waiting for that radio to tell me what to do. Right. About to have inspired a good deal of the rest of my career, uh, unbeknownst to me at the time. Very, very good. Well, welcome to the 108 podcast. Uh, joining me is Mr. Michael Scott. Thank you very much for joining me, sir. My pleasure. So um, just to, I, I kind of introduced you right before we got into the conversation, but if you could just kind of give us a, uh, a rundown of who you are, your history, and we'll kind of go into our conversation from there. Sure. Well, that history um, sort of began with that uh, police officer job, although I had studied policing as an undergraduate prior to that. 
Um, so I became a cop. That was my dream. Um, served as a police officer for uh, a few years and then had uh, a, another dream that one day I wanted to be a police chief. So I thought uh, I need to get higher education than what I have. Ended up going to law school, left my department to do that, uh, attended law school, learned more about the police and landed a job as a legal assistant to a police to the police commissioner of the New York City Police Department out of law school. So a pretty, pretty dramatic jump from uh, driving, uh, working a beat in, in uh, Wisconsin and then uh, working out of the police commissioner's office in the biggest department in the country. Uh, worked uh, sometime in DC as a police researcher, uh, working on studying police use of deadly force and deadly force used against the police. Did a lot of training for police departments in problem-oriented policing. Uh, got to familiar with a lot of departments around the country. Uh, was hired to go down to a police department in uh, Florida. For you Florida listeners, uh, the city of Fort Pierce. Fort Pierce Police Department. I served as the director of administration. Uh, from there, uh, ended up taking, uh, recruited for by the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department uh, as a, an assistant, special assistant to the chief of police to introduce the problem-oriented policing approach in that uh, much bigger department. Uh, then ended up going back to, to South Florida I had seen um, seen a notice for uh, a police chief's job for a department that did not yet exist. And I thought that sounded too interesting to be uh, to be <laughs> up. So I got hired as a police chief of the Lauderhill Police Department in Broward County, uh, really tasked with creating that department. And not surprisingly, with my interests, I developed that department really around the concept of the problem-oriented approach to policing. And so after that, uh, uh, that experience, uh, spent some time uh, working as a um, consultant and advisor with the U.S. Department of Justice, researching problem-oriented policing, uh, began to develop the Center for Problem-Oriented Policing with a number of colleagues, ended up going back to, my, uh, to Wisconsin, uh, as a professor at the University of Wisconsin Law School, where I taught a lot about the police. And uh, subsequently, uh, 10 years after that, ended up uh, here where I am today at Arizona State University in Phoenix, uh, also still specializing in policing. Very, very interesting. So you've kind of got a, a broad understanding of the job from the very, very beginning to the very top and everything in between, including the legal aspect outside of law enforcement. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, fairly obviously it's not a typical policing career. Um, I would say uh, notwithstanding that I've spent time in universities and in think tanks, uh, I see it as all one career. It's all policing to me. It's just mm -hmm. at policing from different angles, doing it, leading it, studying it, teaching about it. Um, but it's all it's all policing. That's great. I mean, that's you know, I always talk about uh, either on here or, or in my own personal and professional life. Like you need to be uh, so well rounded. I always say like kind of like a Swiss Army knife. You know, Swiss Army knife has all these different tools and tricks, and we always talk about tools on the tool belt. Well, you literally have been to every single facet of that tool belt. So that's very, very interesting and not something you hear all too often. 
Well, I like that analogy a lot uh, because I, I, I think that Swiss Army knife actually nicely uh, nicely describes the job of just being a police officer, mm-hmm. um, let alone all those other kinds of administrative and uh, tasks. Just being a police officer itself requires you to be so many things, to be law enforcer, to be guardian, to be uh uh, somebody who, who comforts others, who diagnoses mental disorders, who um, thinks about traffic engineering, uh, mm-hmm. providing medical um, assistance to people, maybe putting out fires on occasion before the fire department gets there. <laughs> right. Incredible array of, uh, of possible tasks that you could be asked to perform as a police officer and really makes the job fascinating and, and more than a little bit challenging. Yes, absolutely. There's a an old Paul, Paul Harvey uh, speech where he was talking about the police officer and what he becomes and what he needs to be. And, and I think that really kind of encapsulates everything that we do. And it's just crazy how so much is relied upon the police that's not just law enforcement. Yeah, that's right. And that, that really lies at the heart of this whole problem-oriented approach to policing. And I think it's something that the public really, uh, no matter how many times we say it, um, they don't fully appreciate that because most people get their, their at least their ingrained imagery of the police from Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably 95% of real police work is of absolute no interest to Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> it's, not, right. it's not the excitement. It's not the danger. It's not uh, the sleuthing to, to solve a, a whodunit case. All that's real, it's there, but every cop knows that that's a relatively small percentage of what police are doing. And, and the number of things that people call the police or call 911 to ask for help about is really, really runs the gamut of, of human experience. Yep. Another, another phrase I've coined is uh, it's like the backstage pass to life. Uh, you yeah. see, you know, behind the curtain for everything. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's a, it's an important thing for police officers to understand is, you know, whether it's a blessing or a curse, but it's a very privileged position in society where you are often invited literally into people's living rooms and bedrooms and into their private lives. And you see the inner workings uh, of society mm-hmm. so that you keep, uh, you keep confidential as it should be, Uh, but you also just become aware of all kinds of things that are happening in any community about which most citizens have no idea, really don't understand. And there becomes at least partly your job to figure out why is, to the extent these things that are happening are causing people harm, why are, why are they happening and who's doing what about it? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, you know, it, it really becomes a, I, I kind of make the joke, like a professional people watcher. You know, you really get to see it. It becomes a sociological experiment and you see how different um, groups of people and different income classes and different parts of society uh, interact and what, what causes different issues in their lives. And, and then, of course, we are called upon to... Uh, to, to solve them. Yeah. And, you know, and obviously every individual, mm-hmm. every police officer mm-hmm. comes into the job 
really only familiar, deeply familiar with their own background, right? their own uh, culture, their own uh, slice of society. And then you become a police officer and you could find yourself in, in a dozen different uh, subcultures in the course of a week. Mm-hmm. You are um, uh, having to learn often on the job, on the fly. How does how do people in this um, in this corner of society, in this subculture, how do they think? How do they behave? How do they speak? And how do I learn enough about that so that I can be of help to them uh, and to um, and to police them? Right. Absolutely. And, and like you've said, it's a lot of learning on the fly and, and you got to be quick on your feet and problem solving and, and critical thinking is all just part of the experience of being a police officer. And it's, you know, it's not for everybody, um, but some are very, very good at that. Yeah. And it, it kind of reminds me uh, when I went to, to Lauderhill for any of the listeners who know, um, well, you know, if you know South Florida, you know that a lot of South Florida communities are quite diverse. But Lauderhill really was about as diverse a city um, as, as I had ever been in, including in some parts of New York City. <clears throat> and uh, the challenges that, that presented to our officers were lot, lots of them, but one of them was just language. Linguistic. Mm-hmm. How do we communicate with these people? We had large populations of French Canadians, uh, populations of Haitians, um, Jamaicans spoke English, but in a, in a Jamaican dialect, uh, Latinos obviously speaking Spanish. Um, and so we ended up um, recruiting and trying to find a very diverse uh, population of police officers. We were somewhat successful in, in, in doing that, and we, we ended up having you know, some perhaps uh, one of the only Vietnamese speaking officers in the state, one of the few Thai speaking mm-hmm. officers in the state with language skills in Russian and, and uh, uh, Arabic and uh, Italian and, and just uh, Haitian Creole and just on and on. Um, that you realize that many, many police departments have that collective need and it's almost impossible to put all of that expertise in one police officer, but you try to get it at least in a police department collectively. Sure, absolutely. And that's kind of what it comes down to, especially and even when we're talking about the Swiss Army knife and, and different tools that make the machine run, you know, sometimes you're gonna have someone that specializes in one thing or another thing, and that's kind of where the team mentality comes to be, is that you know it, it all kind of works together and, and it all drives the machine forward. Yeah, and um, so, so every department does its best. Police department does its best to develop those different tools uh, on the, the Swiss Army knife, but they will ultimately, inevitably, be limited. And it turns mm-hmm. out the, the deeper you get into policing, the more you come to realize that while the police are fairly powerful and have a lot of tools and can do a lot of things, they also are quite limited. There's an awful lot about uh, the, the, the causes of crime that the police cannot control directly. And so all of the tools and all the teamwork and all the expertise you have within the department is ultimately going to be inadequate. And that then takes police departments reaching outside the department 
and saying, well, if we don't have this tool or we don't have this expertise, who does in this community or in the society and how can we, the police, uh, gain access to it and leverage that those tools that others have and get them to do the things that the police might realize need to be done. There's a real art to that. Yes, absolutely. And, and that kind of all this kind of introduction is kind of leading to talking about what you do, what you teach, and that is problem-oriented policing. Can you go ahead and give us kind of a, a generic overview of what it is and, and we'll kind of start picking it apart? Sure. Well, uh, the concept, and this is my dumb luck, that the, the concept of problem-oriented policing was actually first articulated uh, almost the very year that I started my policing career. So it was put out there in 1979 uh, in the city where I grew up in, in Madison, Wisconsin, by a law professor at the University of Wisconsin, Herman Goldstein, who had would spend time uh, working in the Chicago Police Department and really uh, had spent about 25 years of his career just look, trying to understand pol the police and policing. And he, he, he had uh, articulated and written about all of the challenges and the complexity of policing. Um, and in 1979, he, he, put it, he put it together and said, well, I've got an idea for how the police could be more effective in doing this incredibly complex and almost unmanageable job. And uh, so he, he put these pieces together and he called it a problem-oriented approach to policing. And succinctly, it, it, it encourages the police to think beyond just handling kind of one case or one call for service at a time and then setting that aside and going on to the next one. Uh, but instead, in addition to, uh, to doing that, to begin to look and see the trends and the patterns and the commonalities among the different cases that are being investigated, calls that are being handled, uh, to detect what we now think of and call problems, an ongoing set of behaviors uh, that have some common feature. It's the same behavior. It's going on in the same location. Uh, it's happening at the same time of day or day of the week or month of the year, uh, or it involves the same people. It could be a, a gang problem or a, a chronic inebriate problem or a problem with people who have mental illness and so forth. And so uh, it's encouraging, the approach is encouraging police to identify these problems, ongoing recurring things that are just not getting better by themselves analyze them in great detail to, to better understand what's causing this. Why are these things happening? Why is this the worst uh, bar in town? Why is this the worst traffic intersection in the city? Uh, why is this behavior continuing to occur? Why are these people constantly being victimized and so forth? And having figured out some of that, why it's happening, we then begin thinking about new ways that are both uh, preventive in nature, you're trying to prevent the harm from occurring, um, but that also involve uh, oftentimes collaboration with others outside the police department to remedy. So you come up with a new approach. Let's, let's think of a new and a better way to deal with this problem. You put it into action, uh, implement it, and then uh, wrap it up by evaluating uh, how well it worked. And, and if it worked well, great. If it didn't, you go back to the drawing board and say, well, we got to come up with a different plan. 
And that, in a nutshell, really is the problem-oriented approach to policing. Right. I always, when people ask, I, um, I, I try to explain to them, nowhere near as articulate as you just did, but um, kind of explaining that, you know, if there is a rash of burglaries or drug overdoses or, you know, car crashes, there's always a bigger issue there. It's not just that that's a hot spot. Well, it's a hot spot for a reason. And I like what you said about reaching out to to um, resources outside of the police department. For example, um, you know, if, if I'm working on a case, then and it's it's a blighted neighborhood. Well, then I reach out to code enforcement, and and that that kind of goes back to the age old broken window theory. And you start addressing the neighborhood as a whole instead of just that specific case that you're working on. Yeah, that's right. And um, you know, there's so many. When I when I began thinking about putting together this uh, center for problem oriented policing and, and building a whole body of knowledge for the police. One of the things that crossed my mind was, well, how many, how many different kinds of problems do the police have to deal with? And I couldn't find, nobody had ever documented it. Um, and I thought that was a little bit odd, but uh, I just started keeping a list and uh, I keep adding to this list, modifying it, but it's, it's currently about 250 different problems that the police have to deal with. Um, each different from others, and, and most cops would recognize every one of them. The, the kind of call you might be sent on is could be any one of these types, mm-hmm. kind of case that you might investigate, but really the kinds of problems that police are asked to, to deal with is, is very, very uh, wide and varied. And um, it is just unrealistic to expect that one police, one agency of any uh, sort would be able to deal with all of that uh, range of, of problematic behavior. So the police need help. They need cooperation from others. And it's a, it's it's something police have been reluctant to do historically, to ask for help, because it's sort of an action-oriented profession and a can-do kind of uh, profession, which is to our credit. But it hurts us when we think that police alone can fix all these problems. And that's something we're still learning how to do is to, to not just ask politely. Uh, you certainly start that way, but sometimes insist uh, somebody else has got to get into this and, and help us fix it. Sure. And sometimes the the people that we need to ask for help is actually the community that we are serving and saying, hey, you know, we're, we're doing as much as we can to combat this. But at some point, we're going to need you guys to work with us. And it also, so by building this problem oriented policing model, it's really working on the community oriented policing side of things as well. Yeah, that's a great observation. Um, you know, when you, when you reflect on it, um, again, police like to think every officer does, every department likes to think it's sort of all powerful. We've got a lot of, we've got a lot of tools and weapons and uh, legal authority. But at some point, you really begin to realize just in numbers alone, we're badly, as police officers, you're, you're just way outnumbered. The, the citizens outnumber you by you know, 500 to 1. Mm-hmm. So you, you begin to appreciate as you dig into some of these problems that there's just no way that the police can, with um, with the tools and the authority that they have, fix all these problems by themselves. And 
you know, our policing system in, in the United States was, uh, was very much intended to be uh, a self-policing kind of function where the government uh, played kind of a light role in helping the communities police themselves. That's, that's really what we're aiming for is getting communities to, to the extent possible to take care of their own problems. And in, when you think of it this way, the police are really just playing a support role, maybe guiding, maybe training, maybe educating, uh, assisting, using special authority where necessary. But ultimately, this responsibility does fall back to the community itself. So you said that there's about, you said 200 plus uh problems that you have listed out what are some of the most common ones that you see come across or or maybe agencies need assistance with that they might reach out to you for yeah well we thought about that at the very beginning of uh, creating this uh this set of guidebooks for the police that are called pop guides so this is going back to about 1999 and we had funding from the u.s department of justice and so we started thinking and they said okay well Let's start with the, the, the 20 most common ones that you can think about. And uh, from some of my own experience in policing, the first one that I set out to write was on um, assaults in and around bars, basically bar fights. And that's one of the most common. Um, some of the others that we did early on was speeding in residential areas, uh, drug dealing in apartment complexes, uh, false burglar alarms, convenience store robberies, um, you know, dealing with mentally ill people, disorderly youth in public places. Um, so most of these, I think, would be very familiar to, to your listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Everything, everything you just listed, I'm like, yep, worked several of those, several of those, several of those. And, but you're right. Everything that of those that you said, they all kind of have a root to them. And, you know, if you analyze them call by call, yeah, it's going to, it's, it's like you're um, pouring from a never ending bucket. Like you're never going to, you're never going to solve it. But if you find the, the root, then you can probably, fix that situation. Yeah, that's right. And, and of course, one of the things to be, um, we often talk about this and use this, this uh, phrase, the root causes of crime. And that can be a little bit uh, deceptive and misleading because a lot of times when people talk about the root causes of crime, they're thinking about things like you know, mental disorders and alcoholism or drug addiction or poverty, uh, or um, uh, dysfunctional families. And these may well be root causes of crime, but they're not the kind of causes that the police can reasonably be expected to, to do anything about. Right. So it's, it's one thing to say, well, I kind of understand, but what we're really looking for in problem-oriented policing is an understanding of not those deep social root causes, but more immediate causes. So it's not just why do people buy and sell and use drugs, illegal drugs in this neighborhood or in this apartment complex, but why this apartment complex? 
you know, why is this the place where drug dealers choose to, uh, to sell their drugs and buyers choose to go to buy it? And so that can take you into looking at more immediate causes like, well, you know, who owns this apartment complex and how do they manage it? And, uh, you know, who do, they, who do they have for tenants and do they screen for them and do they evict people for illegal behavior? And how, what is the physical design of this apartment complex that would either facilitate a drug walk-up drug trafficking or discourage it? And so it's really that kind of cause analysis that problem-oriented policing is about. Uh, how could we, um, how could we make this problem less serious than it is, and how can we do it in a practical, immediate kind of way? And that's that's why I think this approach resonates with a lot of police officers. It's it's not the deep sociological analysis of inequity and uh, and crime in society, but it's it's pragmatic problem solving. Yeah, you you said it exactly, and and that's why police officers like it. You know, it, I always think of like like you said, the drug dealer, or let's say they're you know the drug related violence that comes from it. Well, why here? What, you know, what are we going to do? Well, we could evict everybody, but then more people are just going to move in and it's going to be the same problem again and again. And then, like you said, we just, if we analyze everything and say, all right, well, this, it, it's, it's almost too easy once you start breaking it down, exactly like identifying the problem and seeing how to fix it. And then it's just getting everybody else in the community to kind of be like, all right, let's, let's start participating in this and make our area safer. Yeah, and that um, it brings to my mind that uh, we've, we've published to date uh, over a hundred of these guidebooks for police on specific problems and specific ways of responding to them and specific ways of analyzing and understanding them. But there's one guidebook we, we wrote that I think is perhaps our most important, and it, uh, it implicates every other guide that we have. So I co-authored this one with Herman Goldstein, and we called it Shifting and Sharing Responsibility for Public Safety Problems. And it really talks about what you just said, um, the need for police to develop greater skill and sophistication in both figuring out who, who else other than the police bears some responsibility for causing this problem, and then importantly, who bears responsibility we're working with the police to fix it. And so in that guidebook, we then lay out a whole variety of techniques and methods that police can consider and use to persuade or sometimes compel other individuals, other groups, other uh, uh, organizations to do what ought to be done to fix this problem. Actually, while you were talking about redesigning the apartment complex in our uh, hypothetical situation here, um, just a few weeks ago, I attended a class for uh, crime prevention through environmental design, which I don't know if you're familiar with that, yeah. but it kind of goes hand in hand with what you're, what you're saying is, you know, if, if you've got a bad location, it doesn't have to be apartment complex or neighborhood, whatever, but you start analyzing, oh, well, the lights are too dark. So people think that they can hide behind this corner and they can deal drugs, use drugs. Um, you know, the hedging is too high. So, or landscaping is too high so they can hide behind it. It's just 
just all these different theories that a lot of people and, and, and practices that people would think of and they'll think, well, that's not really police related. Well, it, it, it can be very easily. Yeah, that's right. The harm that's being caused by it, it be, is the police matter. Uh, the, the, the fix, the solution may not be. And so what we're saying to the police is don't, don't take on full responsibility for fixing the problem if you can't control all of the factors that are contributing to it. But don't stop there because you want to leverage the influence, the authority, the expertise that you have to get others to do what ought to be done. And there is this, this problem-oriented approach to policing, which, uh, as I mentioned, uh, was first developed in the late 70s, early 80s. It turned out that there was a parallel movement. We didn't realize it until a number of years later, but a parallel movement in criminology going on in the United Kingdom about the same time. And that approach is called uh, situational crime prevention. And it's based on a number of criminological theories that uh, many of them boil down to what you just described, which is that the physical design of both things, products, and places can actually influence the behavior with respect to those things and at those places. And the more you come to understand that, you realize that we can, and police um, can help, we can change people's behavior mm-hmm. by changing the design and management of the things that they interact with and the places where they interact with these things. And so it's got implications in all kinds of crime problems. And it does lend itself to much more pragmatic uh, solutions. A lot of the, the solutions related to drug dealing in and around private apartment complexes uh, had to do with uh, things that we would recognize as variations on uh, the SEPTED principles. So as we're talking about problem-oriented policing and we're talking about the different tactics that can be used to kind of uh, combat these problems, what what are some of the universal uh, strategies that can be used regardless of whatever that problem may be, whether it be drug dealing or um, fights outside of bars or car crashes? What are some kind of universal strategies that can be utilized by police officers? Well, we cover some of these in a, in a series of guidebooks that we call response guides. <clears throat> and um, so one of them would be, would be generically uh, the concept of septed, applying those principles of uh, territoriality and natural surveillance and target hardening and the like, and getting police, all police officers really to understand how those things work. Uh, there are... There are other techniques that are commonly used. Uh, One of my favorites uh, is using civil laws like a nuisance abatement. Um, There are a whole bunch of civil laws and many that relate to the management of property that police historically have not really thought much about. Most police work is focused on enforcement of criminal law, but it turns out a lot of these civil laws uh, are incredibly useful for, for modifying the management of places where crime occurs, whether it's a a, a nightclub, a bar, an apartment complex, a convenience store, and so forth. Um, So uh, one example, uh, it was really pioneered by a a Florida police agency, uh, the Gainesville PD back in the 80s, 
was uh, they were working on the problem of robbery of convenience stores. And their deep analysis of that problem led them to realize that the stores that tended to get robbed most often were stores where there was only one clerk on duty and they didn't have they didn't have a number of other robbery prevention measures in place. So instead of just working robbery cases and trying to arrest the robbers, which they did, they also lobbied the city council to require that convenience stores um, have more than one clerk on duty uh, at late night hours. And once that law was passed and defended in court, uh, robberies dropped in, in Gainesville on the order of 75%. And subsequently, this uh, state attorney general in Florida uh, picked up what, what Gainesville had done and passed a law, which I, I hope is still on the books in Florida today. It's a convenience store uh, crime prevention statute uh, that requires that convenience stores have certain kinds of measures that would prevent crime, including robbery, in place. So. Um, so we've got lots of these different techniques and methods in every one of the guidebooks that we publish on specific problems. Uh, the heart of each guidebook is to provide advice to police from both research and practice about different responses that have been proven effective. Very good. And so we, we keep talking about the, the POP Center. Uh, can you get tell us a little bit about the center itself and, and how law enforcement can utilize your services? Yeah, well, um, we deliberately designed this center so that it would be, for the most part, freely available to the police all over the world. And, uh, you know, that's obviously done by the Internet. And so we, although we, we began by uh, researching and then writing and, and printing in, in hard copy these guidebooks for police, we also made the decision uh, with the advice of police officers that we needed to put all this information online as well. And so this center is, uh, as much as anything, it is a virtual center. <clears throat> it exists online, uh, popcenter.org will get you there. And uh, all of this information that's contained there, uh, the hundreds of guidebooks, the, the thousands upon thousands of uh, police agency written case studies of pop projects, um, the library of resources is all just available at the click of a mouse uh, to, a, to a police anywhere in the world. And <clears throat> so I would encourage any listeners, if you haven't seen it, it's probably, uh, probably the most content-rich website in the police profession um, because it really is trying to cover the waterfront of all the police, all the problems that the police have to deal with. We're probably only about a, a third of the way through all of those 250 problems, but uh, but we've covered a good 75 of the most common. That's great. And if you are a police officer, do you have to pay to be part of the center? No, no. Uh, again, all of this, uh, all of this is free. Um, the way we thought about it is um, your taxpayers pay the federal taxes, and and those taxes. Uh, supported much of, for, for, for a number of years, supported the running of this POP Center, the development of these, this information. So we wanted it to be freely available, and we've been able to maintain that. We don't, we don't have the federal funding, uh, 
anymore to do it at the scale that we used to. Um, but the two universities where I've uh, housed the center since it was created at both with the University of Wisconsin and now Arizona State University, they're public universities. And so to a great extent, uh, again, we're using public funds uh, to feed back information, organize and, uh, and disseminate information to the public police so that they can deal with public problems. Right. And that's, that's just a great uh, system to have. Now, you say that it's working with the two universities. Do you also teach at these universities? Yeah. Um, so I've, I'm only affiliated with Arizona State University now. I was for 10 years at the University of Wisconsin. So I, I teach uh, undergraduates and graduate students and doctoral students um, and do the usual kinds of university things. But I, but I also run and administer the Center for Problem-Oriented Policing. And we have a in addition to, to just what's on the website, we also run an annual conference uh, this past year, accepted, of course, but uh, we, hope to, we hope to be able to get back together again uh, this year in the fall. So we've, we've had this conference now for this year will be the 30th year where cops, mostly cops, come together and report on the problems that they've been working on dealing with over the past a uh, few years, and they tell their stories about uh, their new interventions and, and what impact they made on the problems. And we also have an award program associated with the conference, uh, the Herman Goldstein Award for Excellence in Problem-Oriented Policing. That too has been running for close to 30 years. And uh, through that is how we encourage police agencies to document the good problem solving that they do. And so as they document these case studies, submit them for an award program, we're able to put all of those case studies on this website as well. So we're constantly adding to the, the body of knowledge. And the way it ought to work is the way things work in every profession, which is the people who are both doing the work at any point in time and the people who are researching the work uh, should document what they're doing, what what they've had, what's successful, what's not successful, so that other practitioners in that profession can learn, apply those lessons in new ways to new problems, and and likewise report on that. So it becomes a, a, a virtuous cycle of increasing building knowledge upon knowledge. Right. It's a good way to kind of spread the knowledge and, and there's a networking aspect because if you get everyone from over the country to come to this, this conference, you're going to have budding up agencies and I'm sure they have, they share problems at that point and they can say, oh, well, we're doing this. And then it's just, like you said, it's just a cycle and it just builds and builds and, and kind of helps itself out. Yeah, that's right. And, and we don't often fully appreciate this, but this is really how uh, doctors and, and the medical profession operates as well. Um, that your doctor uh, treat, sees you as a patient, uh, diagnoses your symptoms. They may be novel. They may be seeing something they've never seen before. You know, we're dealing with a, a novel coronavirus right now that we've never seen before. They treat you, and, and uh, if they if it's successful, we count on some of those practitioners as well as medical researchers to publish um, and to write up and document what seems to be working. 
Um, and doctors have conferences and they meet and they tell their stories to one another and they share their papers and share their successes and their failures. Um, every profession does that. And uh, much of what we're trying to do here is to um, add those same benefits to the police profession that are enjoyed by, by almost every other profession. Yeah, and I can, you know, I've been working kind of uh, beginner level of problem-oriented policing for almost two years now, and it all came from one of your conferences to my department. So it's definitely, um, it's working, and it's only continuing to grow because now what's working in my agency is being seen by other agencies, and it's starting to branch out and branch out and branch out. So that's great. Um, I know, like you said, last year, obviously, the conference was didn't happen because of obvious reasons. Um, is it scheduled already for this year or not yet? It is. Uh, we're working out the details of it, but it is, um, uh, we're going to go where we intended to go in 2020. Uh, we're going to Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, the Washtenaw County Sheriff's Office is hosting us uh, and it will be um, October uh, 4th through the 7th, I believe. Um, and so as we work out the details with the venue, um, obviously, we have to pay attention to conditions in, in society and the public health conditions. Um, but the details will be put on the POP Center website and we'll keep everyone apprised. So the details are up, the, up there. Uh, at least the dates are there now and uh, further details uh, as they develop. Excellent. And I really hope that the people that are listening that have never thought of the pop uh, concept as far as policing now kind of has a better idea of what it is and how they can implement it. And, you know, maybe we'll, we'll all see each other together in the fall. Um, we're going to be wrapping the, the conversation in just a few moments here. But so what I do at the end of my episodes every week is uh, I like to play a game. It's called signal three. Are you willing to play it? I'll do my best. All right, here we go. What is your dream vacation destination? Uh, it's going to sound very odd, but it's going to be Afghanistan. Okay, why? <laughs> uh, through uh, no doing of my own, I was born there, and I've always uh, dreamed of being able to go back to visit. Okay, very good, very good. That's definitely a different answer. Um, what is your favorite movie? It's called The Flim Flam Man. It was uh, the great actor George C. Scott starred in it. Uh, made in, I think, the early 60s. I remember it in my favorite movie as a kid, and uh, I love seeing it even today. Very nice. What's your favorite cop movie? Cop movie. Oh, I don't know about the movie. My favorite cop TV show is Barney Miller. Okay. I like the humorous side of police work. Yes, I agree. I think, you know, you were talking earlier about the, the drama and the excitement, but, you know, what I like to do with my page is show the humor and that is definitely not uh shown enough right uh what was your high school mascot it was a lion okay and uh coincidentally that lion that mascot went on to become uh after i was a police officer and uh, subsequently the chief of police of uh of that city's police department very nice um what is your favorite donut flavor uh, I always love the, um, I suppose it's a bear claw. Okay. Those are very good. 
Um, if you had to walk into the greatest moment of your life, the biggest moment of your life, what song would you have playing? Oh, I think you're going to stump me there. I know the greatest moment of my life uh, was my uh, birth of my daughter down in, in Plantation, Florida, but uh, I can't quite put a song to it. Okay. If, if, you, uh, if you think of something, just let me know and we'll come back to it. All right. What was your childhood dream job? Uh, childhood, I was going to be a doctor. I okay. on that at, I think, uh, three years old. Okay. That's when you, that's when you changed your mind about that? No, I changed my mind when I was 15. I had it narrowed to, uh, about five different occupations and police officer was one and that, that turned out to be the winner. Nice. Very good. And then of course, everything after that, what was your favorite or what was your proudest moment in your law enforcement career? Proudest moment. Um, it's 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 fairly routine, I suppose, but uh, the the one the few times that you actually apprehend uh, a felony in progress and catch the bad guy mm. uh, almost before the initial police report is done, and that happened to me uh, at least on one or two occasions. And I just uh, I know it doesn't solve all the world's policing problems, but damn, it feels good. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely in the moment, for sure. If you could tell one person one thing about law enforcement that is misunderstood or, or kind of uh, misconstrued, what would it be? I would say over and over, it is uh, human beings helping other human beings. Um, do not expect that the, these are supermen and women. Uh, they are normal people uh, doing extraordinary things to help, uh, to help other people. It's a, it's a people uh, occupation. Very good. That And people do misunderstand that all the time. If you could share one meal with one person dead or alive that you've never met, who would it be and what would you order? Meal. I had the similar question. I'll tell you who, who I'd like to meet and have a meal with uh, would be Sir Robert Peel. Uh, I, okay. Uh, he, he got us going in 1829, uh, started this whole thing, and I would love to have the opportunity to sit down and say, what were you thinking about? <laughs> Very good. And, and what would you order? Uh, well, uh, I don't think I'd bother with any food. We'd be drinking scotch whiskey for sure. <laughs> Very good. Uh, what's the best piece of advice anyone ever gave you? Uh, it, it's got to be become a cop. <laughs> it, it's, uh, it really was, I, to, to this day, of all my experiences, no job was better, more rewarding than being a uniform patrol officer. And that advice uh, said... Um, uh, that's a noble occupation, noble profession. Um, turned my life in a, in a positive direction. Absolutely. If you were given a do-over, what's something in your life that you would do differently? Uh, do-over. Um, maybe have a couple more children, but uh, the one I the one I had uh, was so uh, as almost any parent I think would say it was so rewarding. Um, that's. that's more than any occupation, more than any job you'll ever do, that that will be the one that changes your life. Very nice. Okay, we're talking late night, watching some TV, just relaxing. What is your favorite late night snack? I usually don't snack late, so I'm just going back to a nice uh, single malt whiskey. Okay, <laughs> very good. And our last question for this, uh, if you were stuck in a foxhole, who would you want to be trapped in with to help you get out? Almost any police officer I've ever known. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Talk about uh, being resourceful and, and being the uh, Swiss Army knife. So that works perfectly. 
All right, Mr. Scott, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you. If um, anyone wanted to reach out with you, reach out to you and had any questions, how do they contact you? Yeah, uh, we do it through the Pop Center website. There's uh, uh, contact information right there uh, next to my name. Um, I'm at a public university, the Arizona State University, and uh, easily found on, on the web. Perfect. Thank you again very so much. And uh, one more time, I know you said it before, but just one more time, what is the Pop Center website? You can get to it from popcenter.org or popcenter.asu.edu. Anything, if you type in Pop Center in any web browser, it'll be the first thing to pop up. Perfect. All right. Mr. Michael Scott, thank you very much for your time. And everyone listening, we will be right back. Careful selecting that song for uh, for the episode. One of my favorite songs of all time. That's uh, Billy Joel's "For the Longest Time." You know, you want to talk about nostalgia and living in the past. I remember that song. Jeez, uh, sometime in my high school, that was like our uh, choir class jam, and it brings me back to so many good times. I love that song. Love Billy Joel too, but uh, that song specifically. Uh, definitely takes me back, and I could very easily just listen to it the entire time, the entire thing, singing along. That was that was one of my go-to's. Um, but anyway, hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, once again, thank you to Michael Scott for his time. I really hope everyone starts looking into problem-oriented policing a little bit more. Uh, I can tell you that it can really make a world of difference in your community or, or whatever issue you're dealing with than just arresting the same dope boy at the same street corner every week, uh, especially... You know, I say dope boy, that's a very common problem in the inner city, obviously. Um, but the way prosecution's going for narcotics, you're going to need more than just possession sales or uh, possession charges or even sale charges at that point. So uh, look into it. There's more. Um, we talked about SEPTED. Um, I'm going to try to get someone from uh, a crime prevention institute on the show in the future and, uh, and a SEPTED practitioner. Once again, SEPTED is a crime prevention through environmental design. It's just a really cool tactic to use to fight crime without just making arrests. It's more of a uh, permanent solution or a permanent change that might lead to a better solution. So uh, we're going to look into that a little bit more. Uh, so I have two things I want to talk about to wrap up this week's episode. Um, I know I said that I was going to try kind of change the format of Code 4 Check, and I am, or eh, I'm kind of fleshing it out. That, that's a good way to say it. Um, but first, I do want to talk a little bit about mental health. So um, 
I saw this last week, and it was going to be on the Alley episode, but we had just so much going on with that one, and things with timing and stuff, that I decided just to tack it on to this episode. So, it's still fresh. I don't know the update, if there has been an update, but um, anyway, this is in response to a Chicago police officer's death. Um, I found this on Facebook from uh, Fox 32 in Chicago, and I, uh, I am going to read it verbatim. All right, so, uh, 47-year-old Officer James Daly was a 21-year veteran of the police force in Chicago and had recently submitted his retirement papers, but the board notified him that he was too young to collect a pension check. Uh, He reportedly needed to be 50 years of age in order to collect. Well, he was found dead in the locker room at the uh, 850 West Addison Street uh, precinct, I'm guessing. Uh, He died from a gunshot wound. Uh, self-inflicted. Superintendent David Brown from the Chicago Police Department expressed the need for officers to, quote, check in with each other, end quote, and remind them that uh, peer support through the department's licensed therapists and chaplains, the United States Department of Justice says the suicides among Chicago police in 2017 was 60% higher than the nationwide average. Mayor Lightfoot said that officer suicides are a major concern and that coronavirus has taken an incalculable toll on mental health. But the condolences from the mayor and her superintendent are not enough, according to Sergeant Negro. Uh, Sergeant Negro blasted both of them, the mayor and the superintendent, in in this letter saying they need to do more for the men and women on the force, and at the very least, show police that they are appreciated uh, for putting their lives on the line each and every day. So, um, basically, words mean nothing. And I'm going to read the letter. Um, It's a little lengthy, but uh, hopefully I can get through it really quick for you guys. Basically, this is an ongoing thing. You've got the George Floyd bill in the Senate and the House right now. It is very scary, and I know a lot of you guys have this stuff on your mind, especially in uh, major municipalities or cities like New York and uh, in New Jersey, LAPD and such. So this is the letter uh, from Sergeant Negro in the uh, Chicago Police Department. I must say, with all due respect, I am wholeheartedly offended by your meaningless response to this most tragic occurrence. One of my brothers committed one of the most horrific acts possible. Sorry, he said horrific things possible. I look at this and wonder what was in his thoughts that he did this most tragic act. The department in the past has glossed over this tragedy, a palm card telling me it's okay to not be okay. Does absolutely nothing. Let me tell you, it is never not okay to be not okay. Take a minute and think of what it is we endure on a daily basis, both locally and nationally. You, the superintendent and mayor, are so far removed. The officers you supervise are human. I must ask you, boss, and you, madam mayor, how many roll calls have you attended to tell your officers thank you? I hold you accountable for this officer's death, as neither of you or other big bosses have come to tell us good job. You know the job is more than difficult. A simple word of thanks is invaluable. I make it a point to tell my officers often, thank you. The job is more than difficult, especially with the most recent signing of the police reform bill. I see it. I hear it. Officers are defeated and oppressed more than the department will ever acknowledge. The federal report of our department says we in Chicago are 60% more likely for suicide. Let's look at why. The very men and women that are tasked with keeping our city safe are often vilified and forgotten. Officer Daly's death 
has affected me in a way like no other. I have known many officers before him that have taken the same path. It's time you as a boss and the city look at this and figure out what you are doing wrong. This death was preventable. You failed, as did the city, to prevent this. For every suicide, there are countless others facing the same thing. It's time we humanize the police and understand the stress you have placed upon them. We are not infallible. We are human. We feel, we cry, we hurt, we get confused. You, our boss, never acknowledges this fact, and it hurts us all. Being so far removed from the day-to-day life of police work is a negative. I have almost 27 years on the job and have never been witness to an officer not trying to do what is correct. We do our job every day without praise and believe it does take a toll on us as we see with this most recent suicide. I can no longer hold my tongue and need to be vocal about the stress we endure. Boss, it's real. You're not from Chicago. The politics is real and runs us all, but at the expense of us, fathers, daughters, sons, brothers, children. We are humans like you and the mayor. It is not okay to not be okay. It speaks for itself. That letter could be read and could be vocalized to any number of circumstances and any number of localities. We, when, when we, the police, say it's okay to not be okay, we're talking to each other. That if you do not feel okay, reach out and, uh, and take, take care of yourself. We will take care of you. But what the sergeant is saying is that it's not okay to keep feeling this way. And we need, and you know, we're talking this episode about problems and how we fix problems. And I'm going to tell you that when an officer commits suicide, you don't fix the problem by just saying, hey guys, reach out. It's okay. Well, why don't we figure out why these suicides are happening? What leads us, what, what kind of stresses could possibly be going on on this person's life? Obviously, it, it is a case-by-case basis, but in, in the realm of Chicago... Maybe it's not. There's a reason those rates are so high. So, that being said, you know, I know I do have a couple police administrators that listen. I know I don't have any politicians that listen. And if they do, I'd be very shocked about that. Um, but if they do, it's time to it's time to start listening and, and thinking about these things. It doesn't matter if you're a red state, a blue state. Uh, if you're an independent, it really it doesn't matter. Uh, like uh, like Mr. Scott said in the interview. We're people serving people. It's time to realize that and address it as such. So um, in closing of that topic, if anyone knows or has connections to the sergeant that wrote this letter, please see if he would like to reach out to me. I'd like to speak out, speak with him and, uh, and maybe even get his perspective on the show. If not, a personal conversation would, would be more than, than enough. So we're going we're gonna to transition, but not quite. So... My last topic for today is perspective, okay? We can address this in many different ways. Um, obviously, I've always, I've been talking about mental health and, uh, you know, it's been several months that I've been talking on this show and mental health has always been important to me. And, you know, I said that I was going to start talking about self-improvement and as we carry on to the next several episodes, we're going to, and, and I think this is a good place to start is perspective, right? Because you need to start with your brain. If your brain ain't in the game, you're, you're setting yourself up to lose. Someone reached out to me recently 
and uh, and they said their mentality was, quote, my life sucks, end quote, because X, Y, Z happened or didn't happen to them or for them. And I told them their life sucks because their perspective does. So I've talked so much, so much about Stoic philosophy. And my favorite of their mantras is Amor Fati, loving fate. Whatever happens, take it and run with it. Um, it's going to be good. It's going to be bad. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is, you control how it affects you. Um, you don't get the job you want. Um, even something horrific happens to you as a child or, or even as you've grown up and gotten to this moment in your life. Um, bad things happen. You know, if you, whatever trauma you have endured, um, what I would like to say, and I've said it before, you have survived 100% of your bad days. There's no denying that. If you're listening, that is 100% accurate. So how do we kind of switch gears here? I, I, can't, I can't make you change your mind. I can't make you go from my life sucks to, hey, this situation sucks, but my life doesn't. You, it's a bad day, not a bad life. And I have been in the, in the self-destructive mindset before, even since ado- adopting Stoic philosophy and, you know, being like, you know, how many bad days in a row does it take to be like, nah, my life does suck. I've been in that mentality. I totally get it. Um, I am not free of those thoughts. It's, it's a hundred percent true, especially when things just stop adding up and you got to be like, all right, well, what, what can I do? What teachings and what lessons can I take? from this experience and flip it on its head and make it something that I can work with. And again, I can't go in your brain and make you think that, but it's something that you have to be like, all right, you know what? I didn't get this job. That sucks. Um, what, what can I do? And you know, it's not even counting your blessings. That's, I know that's the thing. Be like, oh, well, I, I, I didn't get the job, but man, you know, my, my kids are healthy. That's great. Don't get me wrong, but it doesn't fix that situation that you didn't get the job you wanted, right? So yes, always be thankful for what you have, absolutely, but you need to do more than just being counting my blessings. So you need to take that other mantra, which is the obstacle is the way, which I have said before, I've actually quoted Marcus Aurelius verbatim to, uh, to discuss it and figure out how to go through it. it it's, a, it's, a, it's a personal thing. It's, it's a decision you have to make in your body, in your brain, and be like, all right, I'm going to take this. You got to take the Rocky mentality. Uh, you know, first Rocky movie, Rocky lost. Let's remember, Rocky lost. But he went the distance. That was a win. Um, and then, of course, Rocky two, he won, and so on and so forth. It's, it's, that, it's that Batman Batman mentality. Why do we fall? Because we learn to pick ourselves back up. You need to just... All these cheesy sayings that, you know, people post on Facebook... It's one thing to hit share. It's another thing to take that, flip it. I feel like Missy Elliott. Put that thing down, flip it, and reverse it. <laughs> anyway, no, but you need to put these little sayings to use. And that's what I did. That's what I did. When uh, I was so stuck on this regret, this uh, living nostalgically, uh, re- you know, just holding, not holding myself accountable seeing people that I grew up with getting things that I wanted. And I was like, man, you know, this sucks. My life sucks. I, I just, I had bad luck. Then I, you know, got off my ass, started putting 
taking care of what I wanted. There's a quote from another show. These are all fictional, but it's not not wrong. Uh, from the show Suits, one of the characters, the main character, he goes, Have you ever loved someone so much you would do anything for them? Well, make that person yourself and do whatever the hell you want. That's... That's it. Uh, he's got a great. He's got a lot of great quotes. I'm a quote guy. I enjoy quotes. Um, you know, as I was kind of getting, getting my ass in check, and like really going after this police thing, and everything, you know, quotes really got me through it. And he's got another one. Um, you know, when your back's against the wall, break the goddamn thing down. Like, come on, you, you got to get motivated. Um, you know. I was on Logan Campbell's podcast. I don't think he released the episode yet to date, but I was on it and he was, he was flipping the signal three questions on me, but he missed one and I wanted him to ask this one. And it was the, the walk on song question. So mine since joining or since preparing for the police Academy was uh, unstoppable by the charm city devils or I'll play it later. Not, not today, but I'll play it later. Basically they say, I'll handle this. I'll handle this. I'll handle this. Um, and it's, it's all about being unstoppable. And I remember, so this is, this is a long, long rant. So forgive me. So I'm going to try to try to abbreviate it. So basically you guys know the story. I went to college, got kicked out because I couldn't afford it. Tooled around with my band for a while, came back to Florida, did community college, uh, got my degree, wanted to go to the University of Florida to get my bachelor's, tried multiple times, couldn't get through because of money issues, and I went to the police academy kind of as a last-ditch effort. Well, right before that, I always skip this part, um, I had got my gallbladder taken out. They said, hey, man, you're not you're not eating right. You got gallstones, whatever. Um, fix that. So... I did. And, um, that was when, so I went to, so I got my gallbladder taken out mid February of, I think 2014. Yeah. Mid, mid February, 2014, got out of the hospital, went to university of Florida on a tour and I loved it. And I was like, "Ah, I really want to go here. That's when I got the idea of doing the police Academy to be a cop there and, and going through, but I wasn't in great shape. So I hooked up with a buddy of mine that I went to high school with. He went to California. He was freaking super just yoked, man. So I worked with him across the country, and, and I got my ass in shape. I dropped – I don't know how much weight I dropped, but I hit my goal of 180. Actually, the day I started the police academy, I was like 179 or something. It was the lowest I've been since like pre-high school. It was awesome. Not that I was like a big guy, but, you know, I was a stocky dude, and – I always lived in the status quo. I tell my girlfriend this all the time. I, I lived in the status quo. Everything, you know, it was good. You know, I didn't rock the boat. Just kind of took life for what it was. But when that happened, I was like, nah, I want to lose weight. I want to I want to test myself, whatever. And I did. I got to below my goal and whatever. That, that's basically the takeaway. I, instead of like being like, oh, man, I just can't get anything that I want. Well, I went out and got it, bro. That's what I did. And that's what you need to do. Whatever you want, stop letting disabilities, mental disabilities, uh, finances, whatever, stop letting that stop you. Get up and go do the work. If, you know, if you're not happy with your weight, eat better. If you're not happy with your physical condition, get to the gym. And if you need help with any of that, well, there's resources out there. The internet has made things so easy 
if you don't want to reach to a, a personal trainer or a nutritionist by you, that's fine. I'm, I'm using that as an example because that's, that's my story. There are plenty of options out there. Reach out to me. I obviously have some connections with Nick Wall and all these amazing uh, fitness cops that are, that are uh, working with me. Guys, the solutions are out there. All right. This is like a 20-minute rant or something at this point, and I apologize, but this is just, you know, stuff that needs to get out there, and everyone needs to start going. So I said we're going to start talking about personal growth, and that's how we're starting, by changing your mind, okay? if you Listen, here's what I want you guys to do. I want you guys to give me a call. I want you guys to tell me uh, what your, you know, what your mindset is. How do you get the bad days gone, and how do you move forward? I want you to call me. I want to hear what it's about, and I want to play it. So for next week's Code 4 check, I'll play it, and it'll intro into our next thing. So phone number, y'all should know it by now, 352-610-1692. Save it in your phone and call me, man. Um, it does not go to my direct line. It goes straight to a voicemail, and I will listen to it um, as they come in, and we will go from there. 352-610-1692. Get at me, dog. All right, so that's going to be the show for the day. I really I want to thank everybody for listening up to this point. It's, uh, you know, I, I know I rambled a little bit. This is what happens when I don't write my notes down before I hit the record button, but I think I stayed on track pretty good. Once again, thank you to Michael Scott for giving me his time and knowledge. Our music today was Peanut Butter Waffles by Ryan Caraveo, which I guess is an older song. I didn't even know that, and it's a dope song. Um, we have Irations All For You, then, of course, Billy Joel's For The Longest Time, and we're going to wrap it up with uh, Keep Flying, one of their newest songs off their newest album, Survival. The song is called Surviving The Night. We all know I love Keep Flying. I got personal connections to the band. They are great. Uh, working on getting Henry, the lead singer, to come onto the show. We're going to talk about uh, me growing up, and uh, us growing up, I should say, and music, and just, it'll be a good time. Next week's episode, ha, 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 ha. We got some good stuff coming. That's all I got to say. Next week's episode is Music and Mustaches with Eric Botsford. He is a cop in Kentucky who is also a musician, and we talk just that. We talk uh, music and mustaches, man. Um, it's a great show. You, you're not going to want to miss it. Uh, we've also got a Jersey Boys episode coming up soon. I don't know which day I'm going to release it, but it's coming. Get ready. Hold on to your butts. It is called Complaints and Grievances. You definitely want to check it out. And that's it. So if you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, subscribe, and share this episode with anybody that you think would enjoy it. Don't send it to people that won't enjoy it because then you're wasting their time, you're wasting my time, and it's an endless cycle. Uh, reach out to the Pop Center if you want to get more information about it, popcenter.org. And I think that's it, folks. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Take care of each other. Stay safe. And we'll see you next time. 10-8, out. So if my story's coming true I'm the hero and the monster too And all that I can really do Is make melodies of my memories And hope my screams will reach you How will I figure out just what this means? My legs are tired from chasing dreams And solving problems I create I could change my mental state if I was awake 
Last year I was asleep to avoid all of the pain. But time forgot about me and everything has changed. I just want to see the sky and remember who I am. I want to live with open eyes. I've decided that I can. I'm waking up. Can't live on love Last year I was asleep To avoid all of 